Hello, everybody, and welcome back to Big Nerdy Questions. Uh, this is Josh, of course, and we are back this week in our Mount Rushmore series. Last week, we killed off so many characters with the Mortal Kombat edition that we decided <laughs> we would honor some real people this week. Uh, and we probably have what uh, my co-panelists and I think may have been the most difficult decision in the history of the Big Nerdy Questions podcast, because today we are... Of course, uh, casting the Mount Rushmore for genre literature, which genre in this case will include science fiction, fantasy, mystery, and horror. So that is quite an ordeal to pick the top four authors in that in those in genre fiction ever. Uh, so uh, of course, I have my fellow literary nerd on the podcast, Ed. Welcome, Ed. Hello, welcome. Uh, glad to be back. <laughs> And uh, Ed, Hi, Ed, you went out and found the most qualified former guest to come back on the show to help us with this one. Would you like to introduce her? Uh, we're we're very pleased here to welcome back E.C. Ambrose. Uh, thank you for joining us again. Thanks so much for having me. I'm looking forward to it. So Yeah, this is going to be quite the doozy. But before we get into the discussion proper, uh, E.C., would you like to recommend something that our listeners might want to take a gander at? Sure. Uh, I would like to recommend the author Claire North. Uh, she writes thrillers with, I'm going to say, a supernatural edge. And her sort of wheelhouse is uh, creating a character who has some unique and bizarre feature that affects all of their relationships and how they live their life. Uh, then she casts that character in a thriller novel where they have to uh, move through the world, interact with people, and both take advantage of and suffer from their unusual trait. So the first book of hers that I read is called Touch, and it's about a character who can transfer into new bodies when they touch someone. Uh, the opening of the book is when this character discovers that somebody's trying to kill them, not the body they're occupying, but the entity itself. And they have to both flee from the murderers and try to figure out what's, what's going on. And most recently I read The Sudden Appearance of Hope, which is about a young woman named Hope who cannot be remembered. So she can't hold a job because the next day when she goes into work, they've forgotten she works there. When she goes to a hospital, they forget that she's in the bed and needs treatment. So they come back and are surprised. Nobody's given her any painkillers. Nobody has tried to, uh, to work with her condition. Uh, so just fascinating permutations of how your relationships in your society break down when people can't remember who you are. That sounds, that sounds fantastic. Like it it kind of sounds like the silence from Doctor Who a little bit. Could be. That's but, pretty yeah, cool. I always like, uh, one of the reasons that I love genre fiction, especially genre literature, is it allows us to make those little kind of twert, uh, tweaks and quirks that wouldn't exist in real life, but allow us to honestly look at the human condition. Exactly. That's what science fiction, yep. fantasy, horror do at its best. Uh, and that sounds like a great example of that because it looks at the, the, notion, the nature of relationships, the nature of identity uh, through a lens that cannot be done in a standard non-genre book. Uh, so thank you very much. And Ed, you also have a recommendation on this episode. Uh, I do. This one is not in the literary realm, but I, well, I guess kind of. It's based off of a manga. Uh, I've been watching a lot of the current anime this season that's coming out from Japan, and one of my favorite that I did not expect to love is a show called Golden Kamui. 
Uh, it's set kind of in 1904, uh, right after the Russo-Japanese Wars. And uh, the, the gist of the story is uh, a guy survives the battles and comes back, and he pledges to uh, offer financial assistance to a widow of one of his former comrades, and he ends up uh, pairing up with an Ainu girl uh, who's who's like a... Oh. Like a, I'm trying to describe this the best way possible, but she's kind of like uh, not like a barbarian in terms of that, but she's more uh, uh, in in the past as opposed to the the uh, present of that time in 1904. And uh, they're they're definitely out in the wilderness, and they uh, you know use all the parts of an animal they hunt and all that stuff, kind of like a frontiers person. And they are looking <laughs> for this rumored gold hoard that this prisoner had accumulated that was Ainu gold, but he hid the location in a map that he tattooed across the torsos of a bunch of fellow prisoners he was with who all escaped. So they are looking for each of these pieces of the map that are tattooed on the torsos, and yes, they do actually harvest the uh, the skin for the map from some of the people. It does actually get kind of brutal, but it is a fantastic show, and uh, the only real complaint I have about it is they, they use CG on the... Uh, the bears that are in it occasionally, and it just kind of jars with the regular animation of it. But fantastic show with some of my favorite new characters this season. Sounds fascinating. Interesting, yes. Although I am a stickler for bears, as people on who listen to the show will know, they're they are my <laughs> animal of choice. Uh, so that 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 is a bit of a problem, but I'll well, deal. I'll deal. Like like I said. I admit the flaw right there, but I can look past it. The bears aren't in, like, every episode or anything like that, and they do actually use CG on one of the wolves that's off and on through the show, and it's not as jarring, but it's a great show that I can overlook that one little flaw. At least the map is not on bears, because I couldn't stomach it if it was. It well, sounds just, weird. Just but... to be fair, they do their fair sh- uh, share of hunting animals in that show, just to warn you. Indeed. Uh, so, um, before we get into the discussion of the Mount Rushmore of literature, because it's going to be quite difficult for us to whittle it down to the four, uh, Ed would like to talk to EC for a few minutes about her, uh, uh, ongoing projects because they are awesome. Ed, the uh, floor is yours. Okay. Well, EC, again, welcome back. Uh, we're glad you're joining us again. Thank you. Uh, I believe since the last time you've spoken with us on the show, you have released Bone Guard 1 and the final Alicia Barber novel. This is true, both um, milestones that I was very excited about. So um, Bone Guard 1, The Mongol's Coffin, is my first published international thriller novel. Uh, I had a blast writing it. Um, I've always wanted to do that kind of thing. I'm a fan of authors like Steve Barry uh, going off on adventures all over the world and discovering lost treasures. So this one is about the uh, musical map to Genghis Khan's tomb, and uh, I'm actually developing concepts right now for the sequel. So I'd really like to fly out to Arizona to do some research for that. I don't know if it'll happen, but (laughs) we will see. I personally enjoyed both of them, uh, and uh, it was interesting to me because I had no real frame of reference for Mongolian culture to just kind of read about the singing and and all of that. It was really interesting and eye opening for me. And uh, great, and, and I know you get really into the uh, historical accuracies of such things in your novels, so that was really appreciated as well. Um, so let's talk about the Dark Apostle. Did uh, what? What is the feeling of uh, finishing a series like that for you? 
at first I was really excited, especially because I got to that that final scene, the climax for the entire series, and I'd been building up to that moment. Um, and I was like, wow, it's finally here, the moment I've been waiting for. And then after I wrote the end, there was this horrible sinking feeling uh, because now I kind of have to say goodbye. I keep saying, comparing it to a relationship. So I've been living in my office with Elisha in the back of my head for uh, probably 16 years or so. And now I have to move on um, and not spend time with him every day. So it's sort of one of those, it's not you, it's, it's me. You know, I've, I've changed, I've grown. I have to go out and meet new characters. I have so. to torture new characters. <laughs> well, yeah, okay. okay, okay yeah. Um, right, so, and of course I've been working on other projects in the meantime, in between the volumes of the series and such, but now that it's actually complete out there on the bookshelves, uh, it, it has that sense of finality, which is both joyous and um, and kind of sad. Well, I mean, the doors never truly close. There's always, like, short stories you could come back to if you ever wanted or something of that nature. Yeah, I've I've written a couple of short stories since then set um, in Elisha's world, one of them featuring the, the first meeting between Elisha and uh, Martin, who was a very popular character from the series. Mm-hmm. So Very good. Uh, would you like to tell our listeners what you're currently working on? Ooh, this is a tough one. So... Right now, my agent is shopping, actually, what I think of as the companion book to The Mongol's Coffin. Um, The Mongol's Coffin, in part, was written because I was researching uh, Mongolian and Chinese history for an epic fantasy novel called Drake Master, which is set during the Mongol invasion of China and uh, features a clockwork doomsday device. So that's the book we're currently looking for a home for. And I just recently finished the first draft of my uh, young adult science fiction novel called A Wreck of Dragons. Ooh, sci-fi. Very cool. Um, Josh, do you have any questions? Uh, well, first of all, uh, what was the difference between writing a contemporary thriller versus writing a fantasy? Uh, I feel like in a, in a thriller, like a temporary world, it is much more about you have to conform to what society is today whereas in alicia's world you could create a little bit more but you you succeeded in both but i'm wondering if the creative process is different in writing a, a modern thriller it is and that's both good news and bad news the good news is that i don't have to invent all of the settings for example uh, or recreate them from historical materials uh, I can use a couple of words or phrases that instantly tell people where we are and when we are. And I tell people that we're going to ride the red line through Cambridge and anybody who's been to the Boston area is like, oh, yeah, OK. And everybody else thinks, oh, yeah, you know, it's a, it's a subway in a city. Um, so in that respect, it's easier. On the other hand, definitely there's more uh, parameters. There's less leeway for simply inventing stuff. Um and in my fantasy novels, clearly the stuff I invent has to fit in with the general milieu. It has to feel like it's arising organically from those things. But um, I felt more constrained. For example, when I was looking for the locations for different kinds of scenes, it's like, well, what would you really find there? And what kind of atmosphere would it have? Uh, and feeling like I needed to pin down some of those things more because people, in fact, might have gone to those places or might know some of those people. So it was a different a different kind of challenge, but definitely an enjoyable one. 
Interesting. Uh, so obviously people should check out all of these amazing new books. Uh, what's the best place for our listeners to find uh, the, all of your work? Uh, well, for those folks who are into ebooks, Amazon is a good start, and there is a print edition of The Mongols Coffin there as well, and the Elisha books should be available at any local bookstore if they're not already on the shelf, and I encourage you to walk to your local indie store and ask them to order it. And they should. And and I should say, for those of you who are local listeners for B&Q in the Raleigh-Durham area, you'll be joining us at Dog-Eared Books in uh, November, is that correct? <laughs> That's right. I am looking forward to that. I'll be taking a little road trip from the World Fantasy Convention, which is in Baltimore, the first weekend in November, and then I will be uh, at Dog Eared Books on November 10th. That is fantastic. So if you are a local listener in in North Carolina, make your way to Dog Eared Books in Raleigh on November 10th. Uh, Not only will you get to see E.C. Ambrose, but you will also have the chance to buy thousands of books, $1 each. Uh, So... And you probably will get to meet their three-legged dog named River, who is just the cutest dog. Uh, don't let my dog hear that. Uh, <laughs> also, at least one or two of the big nerdy crew will be there as well. Absolutely. Excellent. Yeah, so... It's going to be a good time. Yes, uh, we, we look forward to it. So you should definitely uh, come out and uh, have those books and maybe, maybe EC and uh, get some signatures because these are big deals. And I definitely could see the Mongols Coffin becoming the next thriller uh, in the cinema in a few years. Uh, that would be fantastic i definitely see it it's got the plot that it deserves that kind of a treatment uh and they would of course have to have you on board as the consultant to make sure they didn't butcher the plot too much (laughs) (laughs) yeah i like the attitude of one author who was interviewed in time magazine about one of his books being turned into a movie and he said uh, i hope they take my title and make a good film out of it Uh, which is the most that most authors can hope for that's true (laughs) That is true. We recently, as a group, went to see Ready Player One, uh, and mm-hmm. we like the book and we like the film, but they are very different from each other. So, but like you said, well, it, it's they're both okay. Well, the the film faced a, a very interesting challenge in as much as the, the licensing of all of the things that were included in the book would be oh, yeah. difficult for the film. Exactly. So mm-hmm. that was another thing they had to overcome. But then there are some cases where Stephen King infamously hates Stanley Kubrick's adaptation of The Shining. He, he's not the only one, and that's an unpopular opinion. <laughs> but he, I mean, he hates it. Uh, and, Arthur, well, and you so, know, you know. interestingly enough, and you may or may not be aware of this, he wrote a sequel uh, a few years ago, I think in 2011 or 12, called Doctor Sleep. They just cast Ewan McGregor to play Danny Torrance, grown up, in the sequel to The Shining. Yeah, which will be more like Stephen King's vision of The Shining. So we'll be, I'm we will hoping. see how that goes. <laughs> um, <laughs> so, and one of the reasons that EC is on this uh, show, you mentioned you the World Fantasy Convention. You've also judged some fantasy awards before, right? Or... This is true. I judged the World Fantasy Award uh, for the books that were published in 2015, and I've also been on the jury for the Philip K. Dick Award for the best new science fiction novel a few years back. Uh, it's always fun to get the chance to read that many new novels coming out. Um, it's a little intimidating also, but it's like Christmas every day because you open the door and there's more books. <laughs> I wonder what will happen when your book is nominated. Well, you have to recuse yourself, but because you know, it deserves mm. it. 
but so again, EC is not only an accomplished author, but she is an accomplished judge of other authors, which makes her doubly qualified to be on this show. So uh, I did a random draw before the show of order because the way Mount, wondering the way Mount Rushmore episodes go is that we will each do our entire slate instead of doing one at a time because we want everyone to have a chance to explain their choices. And, of course, we can have some discussion. And we will also be discussing authors that narrowly miss the cut. And let me reiterate again that genre literature for this episode includes horror, mystery, science fiction, and fantasy. We do not have to have someone representing each of the four, quote-unquote, but that is what genre fiction means. Of course, there are other genres. There are subgenres. We're not discussing romance in this one, frankly, because I don't have the knowledge base for romance. Uh, and also, romance is its kind of its own thing. Uh, but mystery, fic- mystery, horror, science fiction, and fantasy are, are the, the crux of it and all subgenres that fit within that. So within that random draw of order... Uh, I drew Ed, then EC, then myself. Uh, so, okay. Ed, you have the floor first. Okay. Uh, I, I feel that I have to reiterate what was said earlier in the episode. This was the most difficult uh, decisions I've had to make in regards to this particular show. This was a hard one to do. Okay. Uh, the start of my four. I am going to go with number one being Agatha Christie. Um, Mm. so my rationale for this, not only I have personally read her and I think she's fantastic. Uh, I believe at one time or still is the number third, uh, top selling novelist of all time, only behind Shakespeare and the Bible itself. Uh, and she's written over, I think 60, 66 novels and 14 short stories and just completely revolutionized the mystery genre. Uh, I like her better than uh, Arthur Conan Doyle. I just love her style, and I think she has given a considerable contribution to the uh, to the genre itself. And I, I think she easily qualifies for this position. Uh, number two, and this was a hard one, and uh, I have not personally read Isaac Asimov, but I understand the importance of of what he contributed to sci-fi. Uh, the uh, the three laws of robotics and how it has influenced not only literature but uh, movies and television and and uh, even video games throughout the year since and will will ongoing you know uh, things like uh, ex machina and uh, mm. uh, what else am I thinking about here um, any of the anything dealing with robotics really uh, it's it's all stemmed from him. Well, and it transcends the genre because now actual robotic scientists are debating Asimov's laws. So yes, um, and again, having not read it, I can still appreciate the implications and the importance of what he did and why he deserves to be there. Uh, number three should be no surprise to anyone who has ever read, watched, played anything fantasy. J.R. Tolkien is mm-hmm. the the reason. The reason that uh, fantasy is what it is today. Even the subversions of fantasy would not be a thing without Tolkien. There wouldn't be no Martin without Tolkien. There would, you know, there would be no Sanderson without Tolkien. Uh, I, I do believe that he was the one of the first and 
undoubtedly one of the best. And, you know, am I, everybody... Go ahead. Am I wrong in saying that Tolkien basically created the parameters by which high fantasy is still defined? You are not wrong. I don't believe that at all. He's the man. (laughs) (laughs) And, you know, like I said, contemporary authors, people like Martin who, and and Martin in his own right deserves mention here because Game of Thrones became such a phenomenon that people who would not otherwise get into the genre are now doing so because of HBO programming. And I think that's a fantastic thing. But, you know, Tolkien set the benchmark. And then... Mm -hmm. The last one, and this really is no surprise to anybody, uh, and he is written in pretty much all of the categories we discussed except sci-fi that I'm aware of, Stephen King. I, I cannot – personally, the effect he has had for me and for the world, he has written in you know mysteries, he has written in – uh, fantasy. He has written horror, obviously. Uh, books. His books have been transformed into movies and uh, TV miniseries, and uh, he has told some of the best and uh, impactful stories. Uh, you know, stuff like Shawshank and you know, uh, Green Mile. And then he he'll turn around and he's told you know stories like It. And uh, I just read the most recent one called the the uh, the Outsider, which was oh my god, phenomenal. He has set a mark that, for horror or otherwise, that people are going to be striving their careers to live up to. And the interesting thing with The Green Mile, I'm glad you mentioned The Green Mile, because when people think of fantasy, of course they think of Tolkien, but The Green Mile is fantasy as well. The Dark Tower is uh, as well. And The Dark Tower and mm -hmm. and The Green Mile cannot be more different in terms of tone, but they're both fantasy. The Green Mile, the only fantasy part of it is the nature of our uh, our sad soul who passes, you know, who is in the prison uh, and and what he can do. But everything else is a completely accurate depiction of race and justice in the South in the 1940s. So it's still but it's still fantasy. So it's very, very Mm -hmm. good. And uh, I guess technically, uh, eleven twenty two sixty three could fall into the sci fi genre, couldn't it? So yes, I guess it is. He did, he it's, did tick it's all time the, travel. He did, yeah. he did tick all the boxes, I guess. Uh, it's and, definitely not hard sci fi. No, and no. I can get into that. Little, I'm actually going to discuss that a little bit in my picks. The difference it, it, between the two, but it is sci fi. Um, and I, I'll say this, and you know. A lot of people don't realize just how versatile he is, and he told the story at one of the live events, the, the one that I was able to go to in uh, Nashville, Tennessee, is that uh, he uh, came across this woman while he was down in Florida at a grocery store, and she said, you're, and I'm paraphrasing all of this, you're that Stephen King, aren't you? He said, yes, I am. And she said, you write all those horror movies, don't you, or books, don't you? And he said, yes, I do. She said, why don't you write something nice like that Shawshank Redemption? <laughs> she had no idea. She had no idea that he wrote the same story that it, Rita. Uh, uh, he, she had no idea that he wrote the uh, the short story that that was based off of. And that's just you know, mm-hmm. people people don't understand. But uh, I, I feel like I need to uh, address some of the honorable mentions or ones that well, it was really hard. If not you wouldn't to pick. mind leaving the honorable mentions till the oh, end, okay, just, that's just fine. in case one of the two of us brings them up as well. Okay. Uh, and then at the end, we'll all discuss our honorable mentions, because I'm, I'm wondering how this is going to shake out, if that's okay with you, Ed. 
Yes, that's perfectly fine. All right, so your four to recap are Agatha Christie, Stephen King, Isaac Asimov, and Tolkien. Correct. Very interesting. EC, who are your final four? <laughs> so my my final four, uh, J.R.R. Tolkien. That was the one that the minute you asked me to be on the show, that was the name that came to mind. Uh, I think we're going to get a lot of agreement on that in terms of his influence basically creating the genre of high fantasy, uh, giving something people people something to emulate as well as something to react against, uh, something to consider in the wider context of the world and of national myth-making. Uh, I think he's uh, really hard to beat in terms of his pervasive influence on the genre. Uh, then I'm going to go back a little further in time and name Mary Shelley. Ooh, the author good. of Frankenstein or the Modern Prometheus, uh, often referred to as the first science fiction novel. So Mary Shelley, uh, she was part of this extraordinary group who basically uh, a bunch of friends who were hanging out at a summer place in um, Switzerland. And it was the year without a summer. There had been a volcanic eruption. There was a lot of rain and they challenged each other to write something scary. And she chose to write about the scary implications of uh, this curious new science that was coming about, galvanism uh, involving electricity and its potential in the human body. So Frankenstein is still one of the hallmarks of the genre. There's probably not a year or two that goes by without somebody making a new Frankenstein story, a new Frankenstein film. And I think that... uh, you know, in terms of the, the classic influence as well as the elements that we think of in terms of science fiction, the implications of a scientific discovery or uh, revelation or understanding, and then seeing how that moves through the human sphere. So she's my first, well, my second pick after Tolkien. And then Edgar Allan Poe. Mm. Talk about people who have written in pretty much all of these genres, um, mystery stories, horror, obviously the telltale heart, another one of those classics of literature, uh, definitely reaching into the weird fiction realm as well. So I think he's a remarkable writer who continues to move people and creep them out, lo these many years later. Uh, then the, my fourth pick was really tough because once I had Shelley and Poe on the list, it's like, well, who else has that kind of influence, that kind of reach, the almost uh, genre beginning, you know, the sort of the, the founding parents of genre fiction. And Asimov was high on my list in that regard. Christie was another person that I considered uh, king. Then I thought maybe... Orwell, and I'm going to come down on the side of Ray Bradbury, not only for his beautiful, elegant, and delightful prose, but also for the specific work Fahrenheit 451, which continues to bubble up through our culture. Um, I think it speaks to a wide variety of issues, as do many of his other shorter works. And I think we're going to continue to see that uh, talked about, used in schools, referred to for a very long time to come. Very so interesting that's... final four. And 
Uh, so I'll, I'll do mine and obviously the ones I agree with. So number one, of course, is Tolkien. I agree with both of you that Tolkien is on there. So we can confirm that Tolkien is on Mount Rushmore because Woo-hoo! he, uh, he created high, fi- high fantasy and, and many fantasy works today are either commentaries on or spin or riffs on the universe that Tolkien made, not just literature, but anything like fantasy gaming, fantasy films, like Ed, Ed put it perfectly, without Tolkien, there is no Martin. There, then there aren't. There's no Sanderson. There's none of this other genre. Not saying every fantasy author is working off of Tolkien, but Tolkien built the base, and then it's going from there. So very, very important. Uh, the second pick actually echoes you, EC, uh, because I was going for Ray Bradbury, um, for the same reason as you. Fahrenheit 451 is one of the most important books ever written, but also he made science fiction. Uh, I mean, H.G. Wells and Jules Verne both deserve mm. a mention here, but I feel like Bradbury's science fiction took you know, those fun little stories and started to make it something much more impactful with with society. And he made science fiction with his wonderful prose, high literature. Uh, it, it's, the, I've read Bradbury and Asimov, uh, Ed, and I strongly prefer Bradbury's prose over Asimov's prose. Mm-hmm. Asimov's prose in like the Foundation Trilogy and the Robot novels, they're good. But Bradbury, as an author, is just he he chose the 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 genre of science fiction, but he is an amazing author, full stop. You know, genre or not, and the Martian Chronicles, Fahrenheit 451, the Illustrated Man, they are all going to go down as one of, some of the best works ever in literature, sci-fi or otherwise. So, second choice, Ray Bradbury. Um, third choice, I, I agree with Ed on Agatha Christie. I think mm-hmm. that she completely revolutionized the mystery genre. Uh, when I look at what modern mysteries are, yes, obviously a lot of it goes back to Conan Doyle or to Poe or to Shelley, but I think that the modern mystery novel probably traces its lineage most directly to, to Christie uh, as far as the kind of things that people do in a mystery novel, the kind of detectives and she created the stereotypes of the detectives that people riff off today. <laughs> That's uh, true. I <laughs> mean um, that that when you think of the detective, you think of somebody like Praro or or Marple. Uh, that's you know, what she did. I just read the murder of Roger Ackroy for the first time, and right up until the end, I didn't guess the ending. So that's yeah. Something. I'm not going to spoil it, but the murder of Roger Ackroyd simultaneously established the mystery uh, genre and the genre of the uh, twist well, I, ending. I can't, the twist ending. <laughs> I, was about, I was about to say that the genre that it established would actually spoil the ending uh, of the book. Uh, so if you haven't listened to it, skip ahead about three minutes. Or just edit that part out. I'm sorry. <laughs> no, 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 no. So honestly, what it establishes is the genre of the unreliable narrator. Yep. Mm-hmm. It establishes that trope. That book establishes that trope, uh, and that's it was so revolutionary for its day. Uh, now you can come back, <laughs> uh, <laughs> um, and I won't go any further than that. So those are my three, and then the fourth slot. 
Man. Okay, so here's where it got really tricky for me as well uh, because my personal favorite author of all time is, is Arthur C. Clarke. Mm. Uh, I Hard science fiction has always had a place in my heart. I love hard science fiction. He's the one who revolutionized hard sci-fi. But I don't know if Clark belongs on there more than Poe, more than Asimov, more than Stephen King. Uh, so when I was looking at the whole list and all of it, I, I had to go with Poe more so than Clark. And I, it pains me because I love Clark as an author but I think between Clark and Bradbury, Bradbury's stuff is more important for the genre as a whole. Uh, even though Clark wrote 2001 and Rendezvous with Rama and Childhood's End, which are all stellar novels. But Poe, like you said, EC, set the groundwork for horror and for mystery with his writings. I still recall the first time I read the twist ending of The, the Murders at the Rue Morgue. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that... What a twist. Uh, what a twist. Uh, so it's like when I read uh, Guy de Maupassant uh, and he, the twist endings but applied in the genre fiction. And I firmly would say that neither Poe nor Shelley would have said they're writing a different kind of a novel as far as genre. Mm-hmm. Uh, but they, when you're the first person to do it, <laughs> that's what it becomes. And, and there are so many other possibilities but those are my four uh poe christie tolkien and bradbury uh so by my calculations we said we had if you got on two you're probably on rushmore so tolkien is definitely there bradbury Mm -hmm. is there christie Mm -hmm. is there and poe is there Mm -hmm. and did you guys have any have two that i didn't am i wrong is that the final Uh, four i I counted two on poe Two on Bradbury and two on Christie, and three on Tolkien. Three on yep. Tolkien, yes. Mm-hmm. So that's our that's our four. We've got our Mount Rushmore. Oh, I, we're uh, we are two for two on episodes that I've been on for this Mount Rushmore stuff, where we came to a unanimous decision. <laughs> but the, the honorable mentions, and there's so many. I, I mentioned already a few. Arthur C. Clarke and E. C. Mm-hmm. You mentioned a few. Uh, one of the ones that I was really, really strongly considering is J.K. Rowling. Oh my God, that was hard for me not to and include. Her. I'm sure that, and, and Ed, I wanted to turn it to you for this because you like Harry Potter even more than me, and I, I think we agree that Harry Potter, it maybe it didn't change the genre, but it made it in, hugely popular. Let me ask you this. So, just in reference to Rowling, do you remember a time previously? Because I don't personally, where people stood in line at midnight at Barnes and Noble to get a book before J.K. Rowling. Well, let's take mm-hmm. out Barnes and Noble and just put bookstore. Uh, yeah, wh- wherever you know, wherever you. Yeah, go. I mean, um, I, the thing is, and this and I, this kind of dovetails into another little honorable mention I have, but. She was so influential in getting an entire generation to read. Yeah. I the mean, importance of that cannot be overstated. She might be the most influential YA genre yeah. author. Well, and then let's yes. not take away anything from what else she's done. The Cormoran Strike detective novels. Oh, I've loved every not. one of them. And she, she is a fantastic writer. I personally like the Fantastic Beast movie, so I know she's a good screenplay writer. Uh, you know... And it was hard for me not to include her, but as we discussed kind of before the show air recorded, 
I think that in another 20 years, 30 years, if we, you know, we're still doing this podcast for whatever reason, we might come back and revisit this and she might be on there because she, she hasn't been around long enough, I don't think, to have as big of an impact as everybody else has on our list. So can I ask you, Ed, mm-hmm. um, you did put Stephen King on there, who is also a still living modern author. Yes, and so, he's been around. He's but been, he's, he's been, been writing since the seventies. So yes, is that and, the difference that his well, to, his corpus is much longer, to, longer to lasting? Me, to me, yes. And then, I mean, even though I appreciate her other works, she's primarily known for Harry Potter. I mean, if you think Stephen King, you can think of The Shining. You can think of it. You can think of The Stand. You can think of Christine, or you know. Uh, Cujo, Cujo, any any of that, you know. Salem's Lot, which I'm currently so reading. Short stories, yeah. Yeah. Salem, oh, Salem's Lot is so good. Pet um, Cemetery, Carrie. Let me tell you something, and I've read a lot of his stuff. I would say at least eighty percent of his stuff, maybe ninety. But nothing has ever unsettled me that he has written quite so much as Pet Cemetery did. I don't know what it was about that, the the permeating sense of dread and inevitability throughout it, or what. Mm. But it was so so good and uh you know even his less well-known stuff like the tommy knockers and the running man things like yeah. that are still still hold up they, as, they as made, quite good they, thinner has been made into a movie i mean mm-hmm. you know uh, and they're not you know they're not all winners you know like they're not all going to be the shining or the stand or whatever uh, but you know he and he and like I said he dabbled in pretty much all of the categories we listed. Uh, Mr. Mercedes was a detective procedural with no supernatural element whatsoever, and it was very well written. And uh, I, I loved that novel. And uh, you know he he really is a master of his craft. I I cannot sing his praises enough. And uh, let's go to EC for a second because we talked about Shelley. And I honestly, I thought about Shelley as well. Um, I the reason I, I was had it down between Shelley and Poe for that spot that I gave, and I, mm-hmm. I I leaned in Poe just because I think Poe made a, a wider contribution to the different like the because he wrote a lot. I mean, so did Mary Shelley, yeah, but you yeah. associate her primarily with uh, modern-day Prometheus, Frankenstein. Mm-hmm. Um, but I I could see the case for Shelley, absolutely. I mean, I think Shelley predates Poe by a good couple of years. Uh, so Shelley would have influenced Poe, to be sure. Uh, so who, who were your almost runs, EC? My, my almost runs? Uh, a lot of them have already been mentioned. I'm um... Asimov, obviously. I briefly considered Heinlein and then turned away. Um, Clark would be high on my list, another one of my favorites, uh, especially for his short fiction. Um, yes. You know, King was on there, sort of scanning down my list. I actually wondered about some of the uh, children's authors, like Dr. Seuss, as an influence on the subconscious and then the conscious of the children who became the writers, uh, and just opening up our minds to the fantastic and extraordinary. Um, But maybe he's another Mount Rushmore for another day. (laughs) (laughs) Maybe he deserves his own Mount Rushmore that's oddly shaped and is striped. (laughs) Probably. And has a very, very strange tail. Yes. Yes. Uh, I those are fantastic uh, possibilities. I did, I, did have, I did have one honorable mention. Yes. Kinda, uh, 
going off of what she said about Dr. Seuss, and I kind of talked about this with JP off the air, I really think LeVar Burton deserves an honorable mention here somewhere, <laughs> because, again, if you're talking about service to literature, mm-hmm. I mean, how long did Reading Rainbow run? I mean, how many children were influenced by that show to pick up a book? I mean, I I think he deserves at least an honorable mention. I could see Mm. that for sure. I I, I definitely could. So my my other honorable mentions, I I wanted to mention Ursula Kale again. Yes. uh, Because she she didn't establish the use of gender as a major plot point and characterization in genre. But when you think about using gender as a main defining thing, you think of her, especially the Left Hand of Darkness, which is mm-hmm. an eternal classic. Uh, there, uh, I did think of Philip K. Dick briefly, uh, but he has his own demons. But some of the works are are quite interesting. I also thought of uh, Alan Moore. Um, mm-hmm. I know it's graphic novels, but the plot of The Watchmen and some other of his works are uh, are definitely qualified to me as literature. And of course, in the more modern, maybe somebody like a Neil Gaiman, uh, oh. a Stephenson could could possibly be mentioned. There's, and then of course you also could have somebody like uh, if you're going for horror, maybe somebody like Anne Rice. Uh, because mm-hmm. those those novels, uh, the Lestat novels, were incredibly influential in the early '90s. The uh, and if we're going strictly based on influence and not based necessarily on writing style, Dan Brown completely changed publishing uh, in, in the mid 2000s with the the phenomenon that was the Da Vinci Code. Uh, right. So there are definitely some other honorable mentions in there, but. And there are other authors maybe that are writing today that will eventually be on it. I, I think that's kind of goes without saying, but there are certain ones that deserve a mention. Looking up right now, I know which author I'm thinking of, but I always mispronounce the name. Ah, yes, uh, uh, Murakami, uh, the author of uh, mm-hmm. 1Q84 and several other novels. Uh, it, Yes, people like that who are writing today definitely could end up being on this list. And like you said, Ed, there's no way of knowing what will be looked back on a hundred years from now. A good example of this, I think, as far as mysteries go, is the author Wilkie Collins. He he's still known mm-hmm. to some extent for the Moonstone, the Woman in White. But in his time, Wilkie Collins was just as popular as Charles Dickens and several other uh, big names. And today, he's not mentioned as often. And that's not the best example because he's not completely obscure. But there, are, there were best-selling novelists of the pulp sci-fi genre in the 50s who we couldn't name today. We just couldn't. Uh, so... Mm-hmm. Who holds you up? Know, so. And I, I would venture that several of the ones that we listed today will be very, very applicable to this discussion down the road. I, Sanderson, I, I had never picked him up and read before this year, and he has, he has blown me away. I have loved his fantasy. I've been reading the Mistborn series. I think he's great, mm-hmm. and I haven't even been touching uh, his Stormlight Archive, which everybody tells me is like a renaissance for fantasy, so we'll see what happens there. And I, I wouldn't see I, I wouldn't uh, question Martin getting on there eventually if he finishes the series, but that's <laughs> a debate for another day. Uh, he, you know. 
and rolling, obviously. I mean, yeah. Right. I also thought about William Gibson. Oh, yeah, Neuromancer. Tend not to think of Gibson that much anymore because he just hasn't he hasn't been writing. Um, you know, Stevenson is still out there producing more work, but uh, William Gibson's Neuromancer, I think, had an extraordinary impact on not just within the genre, but then reaching out into uh, the world of computer science. I think there's there's people working in software, people working in wetware. And uh, the interfaces between them who are there because of that book. I agree completely. Uh, also, I was thinking perhaps of Margaret Atwood uh, mm. because mm-hmm. of The Handmaid's Tale and uh, mm-hmm. the, the rise of dystopian novels using novels to do a uh, very, very much in this fashion of Orwell. Looking at uh, And if you're going to consider Orwell, then you probably have to consider Aldous Huxley as well uh, for Brave New World and some other books like that. Mm-hmm. Uh, Kurt Vonnegut. Yeah, I was just thinking about that because of Slaughterhouse <laughs> Five and some other the, the other similar works. Uh, there's just so many amazing authors, and I mean, man. If, you, if you want to go for more obscure, I mean, people like Robert E. Low, uh, Robert E. Howard had a a big impact on you know swords and sorcery and mm-hmm. all that you know, and uh, you know I I like Solomon Kane. Not a lot of people know about him. They know Conan though. <laughs> and and what about uh, Robert Jordan? Oh yes, Robert Jordan. Uh, you know, undoubtedly, I've read the first four Wheel of Time novels, uh, and I've enjoyed every one of them. Um, it, it's sad that he's no longer with us, and uh, you know, and that's kind of Sanderson got picked to finish his stories. That you know, so mm-hmm. back this kind of circles back to that, and that speaks to his talent that they would his estate would pick Sanderson to finish it. And if we're looking at authors who have that one synonymous series. You know, we have Wheel of Time with Robert Jordan. We have, of course, you already mentioned Harry Potter with J.K. Rowling. We have mm-hmm. the Dune series for Herbert. Robert. I don't like his politics personally, but Orson Scott Card with Ender's mm-hmm. Game, and that's the whole series right. with Ender's Shadow. Uh, again, hugely influential. And that is where the podcast recording went haywire. For some reason, our recording disconnected. Then when it reconnected, it lost my audio stream. So you have a conversation between EC and Ed and nobody. And I don't think anyone wants to listen to that sort of strangeness. So unfortunately, the episode's going to have to end here. Uh, But I do want to recap our final decision for Mount Rushmore for literature. Uh, As you heard already, we did come to a decision as a group. And our four people that are going on the Mount Rushmore of sci-fi, fantasy, horror, mystery literature, genre literature are Agatha Christie, J.R.R. Tolkien, Ray Bradbury, and Edgar Allan Poe. Those are the final four, and they will be joining the other limelights of Mount Rushmore's of various kinds in the B&Q pantheon. I thank you again to E.C. Ambrose for joining us on Big Nerdy Questions. It is always a pleasure to have her on the show. Please, if you're going to be in the Triangle area of North Carolina in November, come visit her at Dog-Eared Books. Uh, get her to sign some uh, some of her books, and I guarantee you'll meet meeting one of the nicest authors around. Uh, maybe you can even meet some of us from the show. And... In the meantime, thank you very much for listening to Big Nerdy Questions. On behalf of Ed and myself, we really appreciate it. Next week, we'll be doing something a little different. Uh, we'll have a crossover event with 
two amazing wrestling podcasts, Super Kicking It with Kelsey, the Two-Face Pod, uh, and uh, View from the Top Rope as we introduce our first ever Big Nerdy Wrestling episode. We really hope you enjoy it. And then uh, after that, two weeks after that, we're back to our regularly scheduled programming, and this time we're talking about Star Wars. And one of the questions that lingers in Star Wars fandoms for, well, forever we're finally going to answer here on Big Nerdy Questions with Colleen hosting her very first episode. So until then, this is Josh saying have a big nerdy week and we'll talk to you soon. Bye-bye.